Physics World. Hello, I'm Mateen Durrani and welcome to a very special edition of the Physics World weekly podcast, where we're going to be revealing our top 10 breakthroughs in physics for 2023. But first, a word from our sponsors, Reports on Progress in Physics, which for almost 90 years has published the work of exceptional authors, including several Nobel laureates. Today, the journal offers open access publishing options, waivers for authors in low-income countries, and bespoke marketing support for all original research articles. The journal has also embraced double anonymous peer review, co-review, and open data sharing policies. And as a society-owned publisher, all profit goes towards public and scientific good. Visit ippublishing.org ROPP to learn more. Now, this is the 15th year we've picked a Physics World Breakthrough of the Year, and taking you through our choices, I'm joined by my colleagues Margaret Harris, Tammy Freeman, Michael Banks, and Hamish Johnson. Hi, everyone. Hi, Martin. Hi. Hi. Hi there. Hi, Martin. Now, in addition to having been reported in Physics World in 2023, our selections have to do three things. So they have to represent a significant advance in knowledge or understanding, be important for scientific progress or development of real-world applications, and be of general interest to physics world readers. Now, before we get into the top 10, we've included an honourable mention for some fusion research that took place at the very end of 2022, and therefore missed the cut from last year's awards. So, Michael, you're going to tell us about this fusion work, which was at the National Ignition Facility in the US. Michael, do you want to take us back to the end of 2022? What was that work about? Yeah, that's right. So this was a result that was announced right at the end of last year. And so just misses out on our 2023 breakthrough. But it was still kind of a major advance and so worthy of an honourable mention along with our top 10 for this year. So this is about laser fusion, and the work was done at the $3.5 billion National Ignition Facility in the US, where for the first time, the lab generated more energy from a controlled nuclear fusion reaction than was put in. So the laser shot was performed on the 5th of December 2022, and that released 3.15 million joules or megajoules of energy from a tiny pellet containing hydrogen isotopes. So this 3.15 megajoule output was compared to the 2.05 megajoules that the laser system delivered to the target. So this, the researchers at NIF claim, uh, demonstrates a net fusion energy gain. Now we should probably add that it takes hundreds of megajoules to charge NIF's uh, 192 lasers. So it wasn't energy gain in terms of the total amount of energy put in, but nevertheless, it was an important breakthrough so much so that some uh, fusion researchers um, call this demonstration of net energy in, in as a Wright Brothers moment for fusion research. So that was some great fusion research that took place at the very back end of 2022 and got our honourable mention for this year's awards. But let's get cracking on to the top 10 breakthroughs for 2023. And Tammy, we're going to start with some work in biophysics. And now these are researchers who've grown electronics directly inside living tissue. So that sounds pretty crazy to me. Tammy, what's that all about? Okay, so it's all about the interfacing of electronics with neural tissue. So that's tissue in the brain, the spinal cord and the nerves. 
Now, if you can do this, it provides a way to study the complex electrical signaling of the brain, for example, or even to modulate neural circuitry to treat diseases. However, there's a problem in that there's a fundamental mismatch between rigid electronics and soft tissues, and this risks damage to delicate living systems. So in this work, the research team from Linköping University, Lund University, and the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, they found a way around this mismatch by developing a way to create electrodes directly within the body. So the process starts with an injectable gel made from a complex cocktail of molecules, including an organic monomer and enzymes such as glucose oxidase or lactate oxidase. Now, after the gel is injected, these enzymes break down metabolites that are found naturally in tissue, such as glucose or lactate, and all these reactions cause the organic monomer to polymerize. Now, the clever bit is that the polymer is conducting. So basically, they've created a soft conducting material inside living tissue. So senior author Magnus Bergen and colleagues validated this new technique by injecting the gels into anaesthetized zebrafish. So gels injected into their tail fins, for example, they turned a distinct dark blue colour, which shows that they polymerised. Um, they also showed that they could grow these electrodes in the brain and the heart of the zebrafish. The gels were non-toxic. So three days after creating electrodes in the brain, the zebrafish showed normal swimming behaviour and there were no signs of any tissue damage. Now, the researchers also investigated the possibility of creating electrodes for recording or stimulation, so for neuroscience applications. And they did this by injecting the gel into medicinal leeches, which have an easily accessible nervous system. And they showed that the gel could polymerize around the leech's nervous tissue and could interface with gold electrodes on a tiny flexible probe. So the next step, they say, is to refine the formulation of the gels and evaluate them in larger animals. And the researchers also plan to create connections to external circuits for recording or actuation of neuronal signals. Wow, that sounds incredible. Um, I don't know if I'm looking forward to uh, leeches that can do anything that I wouldn't want them to do to me, but it does sound uh, incredible. And of course, my, my own PhD many years ago was in soft matter physics, so I love all this stuff. Thanks, Tammy. And uh, now, Hamish, now, I don't think any Physics World top 10 breakthrough list would be complete without something on neutrinos, the elusive neutrinos that we like to talk about. And this year's no exception, is it? Yeah, that's right, Mateen. It's, it's the good old neutrino, sort of the, the workhorse of the uh, uh, probing the standard model of particle physics. And, and this was a really interesting uh, bit of research because um, Tijin Kai at the University of Rochester in the U.S. and colleagues working on Fermilab's Minerva neutrino experiment have, have actually used neutrinos as a probe of uh, the proton. Now, normally, um, you know, you think of the neutrino as very elusive, as you said. Uh, you know, in the past, uh, physicists have built these huge sort of building-sized uh, detectors just to, to spy one or two neutrinos. So I think it's, it's actually amazing that these uh, physicists have managed to turn the tables almost and use the neutrino as a probe 
of, uh, of matter. And what they've done, this, this was the idea of Kai, um, who is a, a postdoctoral researcher. The idea is that they scattered neutrinos from a plastic target. And just a few of those neutrinos would actually scatter from the, from the protons in the target. And if you looked at the scattering pattern, you could, you could gain some information about the structure of the proton. Because, you know, we, we might think of the proton as a point particle, but really, you know, it's sort of made of quarks and it has a radius and, and those sorts of things. Um, so, so Kai thought, well, you know, why not? We can do this with electrons. Why not scatter neutrons, off, uh, neutrinos off uh, uh, protons and see what happens? But the big problem is that um, within the plastic, there's lots of carbon. And the neutrinos tend to scatter from the carbon rather than from the protons. So the, the carbon scattering is a huge background. And so what Kai and his colleagues did is they, they came up with a simulation of what the carbon scattering should look like. And then they uh, subtracted it from their experimental data. And lo and behold, they got this beautiful neutrino scattering data that looked a lot like electron scattering data. And sort of electron scattering is sort of the, the standard for, um, for looking at the structure of the proton. So on that basis, they, they believed that they were successful in using neutrinos to, um, to probe the structure of, uh, of the proton. And you know, this could give us um, some more uh, uh, insights into the structure of the proton. Um, you know, its charge radius, maybe uh, you know, how the quarks are arranged, that sort of thing. But it could also tell us something about the neutrino. Um, so, you know, I think this is a really interesting experiment and a really sort of clever way of using the neutrino beam at Fermilab. Um, and, and the best part of it is that um, Tejin Kai, uh, he's a postdoc, he came up with this idea and apparently um, a lot of his senior colleagues didn't believe that it would work, but he persevered and uh, managed to get this beautiful um, measurement out of it. So it just goes to show that if you try, 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 and try again, you can, you can find some success. Yeah, exactly. So using neutrinos to probe the uh, structure of the proton. Um, uh, now, thanks, Hamish, for that one. Um, and on to our next breakthrough of the year, which now, Michael, I love this one because it's so simple, but also really complex. Now, we've all heard of Young's double slits, uh, which famously Thomas Young, who was born 250 years ago, used to demonstrate the wave behavior of light. But now physicists have done a Young's double slit experiment, not in space, but in time. So, Michael, you've got to explain this one to us um, in the next couple of minutes. Go ahead. <laughs> Good luck, Michael. <laughs> yeah, th thanks for the uh, challenge on this one. Um, yeah, so as you uh, mentioned, in the early 1800s, um, Thomas Young carried out one of the most iconic experiments uh, in physics, where he demonstrated the interference of light waves through a double slit. Since then, we've had many different variations on the technique, and this year, an international team of researchers demonstrated Young's double slit interference, not in space, but in time. So this was done by using a material in which two slits rapidly appear and then disappear, so one after the other. And this causes the incoming waves to maintain their path in space, but they spread out instead 
in frequency. So the researchers did this by tuning the reflectivity of a semiconductor mirror on and off twice in quick succession and then recording the interference fringes along the frequency spectrum of light that bounced off the mirror. And when they did this, then they saw that the interference happens between waves at different frequencies rather than different spatial positions. So therefore, a double slit in time. Now, you might think that this is kind of pure basic research, but the physicists uh, think the work could have several applications, such as in optical switches for signal processing or in optical computing. Brilliant. And as I mentioned, you know, it's 250 years since Thomas Young uh, was born. And Martin Rees, the UK's astronomer royal, had a great feature on Physics World all about Thomas Young. And it's great to see, you know, the impacts of, you know, a person who's a real polymath still uh, being felt 250 years on. So thanks for that, Michael. Um, And now, Tammy, um, we've got another medical breakthrough on the list, which quite unbelievably involved a patient with spine injuries being able to walk again, which sounds miraculous, but it's real science, isn't it? Yes. So, um, so with a spinal cord injury, what happens is the brain can be disconnected from the region of the spinal cord that produces walking. So the communication between them is interrupted, and this can lead to paralysis. So in this study, a team headed up by Grégoire Cortine from EPFL in Switzerland has found a way to restore this communication using a brain-spine interface. And they demonstrated that this approach could help an individual with paralysis to stand and walk naturally. So this brain-spine interface device, it consists of two parts. Firstly, there's a 64-channel grid of electrodes, which is implanted in the participant's brain, and it's implanted in the regions that respond to their intention to move their lower limbs. And these electrodes record the brain signals. An AI algorithm then decodes the brain signals in real time to interpret the user's intention to move and converts these into stimulation commands to activate leg muscles. So the second device is a neurostimulator connected to an electrode array, and this is implanted over the region of the spinal cord that controls leg movement. And this device delivers the required electrical stimulation to induce leg movement. So basically, between the two of them, they create a digital bridge between the brain and the spinal cord. So it's a two-part process. You're capturing the thoughts of the participant, and you're translating these into spinal cord stimulation to control their leg movement. So to test this device, the researchers recruited a 38-year-old male who had a spinal cord injury from a bike accident 10 years earlier. Now, he participated in a previous trial that used targeted electrical stimulation of his spinal cord. And this enabled him to regain the ability to step with the help of a front-wheeled walker. But it wasn't natural walking. Um, And after three years of training with this stimulation-only approach, his recovery had plateaued. So this is why he enrolled in this latest study. So after he'd received the two implants, the researchers calibrated the brain-spine interface to select brain signals linked to his intention to move, and they configured stimulation programs to target groups of lower limb muscles associated with things like weight acceptance, propulsion, and swing functions. So processes that could enable walking with crutches. And 
using these after just a few minutes of training, um, the participant was able to walk naturally and independently. And after more training, he was able to climb up and down a steep ramp, climb stairs, negotiate obstacles and traverse varying terrains. The brain-spine interface remained reliable and stable for over a year of use, including when he was using it at home without supervision. So speaking in a press briefing, the participant explained that while the previous study with the spinal cord stimulation, it restored some basic walking ability, he said it didn't feel natural. Before, he said, the stimulation was controlling me. Now I'm controlling the stimulation with my thoughts. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? You know, amazing story. And of course, we noticed that the person who was involved very closely in the work was originally a physicist by training. And um, incredible to think what they, uh, that team managed to do. So that's the first four of the uh, top 10 breakthroughs done. Um, next up, Margaret, um, we've got some quantum physics. And you can't be a bit of research into quantum entanglement, can you? So this breakthrough, you're going to tell us what this one's all about. Yeah, so this entry is about quantum repeaters, uh, which is a very important technology for quantum networks because they make it possible to transmit very weak quantum signals, you know, potentially even signals from just a single entangled photon, and transmit them over long distances when the optical fibers that carry the signal aren't perfect, meaning the signal gets attenuated and becomes harder to, harder to detect the further it travels. And Generally, there are two ways of boosting quantum signals. One is to use something called trusted nodes, which are points in the network where you detect the quantum signal, recreate it, and then pass it on. But the problem with that is that one of the key selling points of quantum networks and quantum information generally is their security. The idea that someone trying to eavesdrop on the signal won't be able to do that without destroying the quantum state and thus ruining the information they're trying to read. In a network that uses trusted nodes, there are, by definition, places in the network where that quantum level of security just doesn't apply. So a quantum repeater gets around that by creating a direct entangled connection between distant network nodes. But that's not, that's not a straightforward thing to do because the rules of quantum mechanics restrict the copying of individual entangled states. So repeaters can't simply copy the signal they receive and pass it on to the next node. Instead, they have to store the information in what's called a quantum memory, and then transfer it using a process called a Bell state measurement. And this quantum memory needs to meet certain requirements. Um, most importantly, the storage time of the memory needs to be long enough to do to the transfer of the entanglement. But there's also some practical requirements too, like needing the quantum signals to be at telecom's wavelengths, so you don't have to lay new fibers everywhere, and, and also it needs to produce the signals in a reliable way. So the researchers involved in this breakthrough show that they could do all those things in a single system. For their quantum memories, they used a pair of trapped calcium-40 ions that emit photons after being illuminated with a laser pulse. And that laser pulse leaves each ion-photon pair entangled. Then each of the photons gets converted to telecoms wavelengths and sent down an optical fiber 25 kilometers long. As the final step, the repeater swaps the entanglement on the two ions leaving two entangled photons that are 50 kilometers apart. It's a really cute trick, and the quantum information community has been building towards it for years, demonstrating each of these requirements for a workable quantum repeater in different systems. But this year, researchers led by Ben, La researchers led by ben Lanyon of the University of Innsbruck in Austria put all those things together in a single system, and that's why their work is on our list of this year's top results. Thanks, Margaret. That's um, pretty cool, isn't it? Um... 
So that was some quantum physics. Now, Michael, the next bit of research, um, we did like it because it involved using synchrotron radiation to image a single atom, which sounds uh, really easy to explain in a nutshell, doesn't it? Um, so wh who, who did this work and what's, what's the, what was the purpose of the work? Yeah, that's right. So there are already techniques that exist in which you can image single atoms. Um, for example, transmission electron microscopy, which involves kind of sending a beam of electrons through a sample to image it. But until recently, the smallest sample size that could be analyzed using synchrotron X-ray um, scan scanning tunneling microscopy was an atogram, which is around 10,000 atoms. So this is because the X-ray signal produced by a single atom is extremely weak and therefore conventional detectors are not sensitive enough to detect it. So to get around this problem, scientists in the US developed a sharp metallic tip that they added to a conventional X-ray detector, where the tip was able to be placed around one nanometer away from the sample that's to be studied. So as this sharp tip is moved across the sample, or across the surface of the sample, that is then illuminated by X-rays, electrons tunnel through the space between the tip and the sample. This then creates a current that can essentially be detected, or it can detect the fingerprints of certain elements that are to be studied. So using this so-called quantum needle allowed them to combine the ultra-high spatial resolution of scanning tunneling microscopy with the chemical sensitivity provided by X-ray radiation to be able to characterize a single atom. And this technique could lead to applications in material design as well as in environmental science through the ability to trace uh, toxic elements down to extremely low levels. And what was the chemical nature of the atom, Michael? So they used, they the, the elements that they studied were uh, iron, iron-based compounds. Okie doke. Um, so thanks, Michael. Um, so down from the lab, um, now back up into space. Now, Hamish, we had a hard job picking one of the many breakthroughs from the James Webb Space Telescope, um, which launched uh, just over a year ago. Um, but this next bit of work was kind of what the mission was really all about. So studying the early period of the cosmos after the Big Bang. Yeah, that's right, Matina. Lots of great work done by lots and lots of astronomers on the JWST, but we've we've chosen chosen some work that was done by the Iger collaboration, and they were looking at a sort of a mysterious era in the early universe called reionization, and just prior to this period of reionization, the universe was full of hydrogen atoms that absorb light. And so it's sort of a, it's difficult for us to see um, back sort of beyond that era because we can't really see uh, any of the light coming out. Um, but at some point, um, intense sources of radiation within the universe began to ionize these atoms. And that created the transparent universe that we have today. Um, so thanks to reionization, we can see the stars, I suppose. And it's widely assumed that it was light from the first stars and galaxies that was responsible for reionization. But there's other possibilities. I mean, you know, some astronomers suggest that intense, radi intense radiation given off as matter falls into black holes could have caused reionization. 
But what these Iger astronomers have done is they've used um, the JWST's near-infrared camera to study light from ancient quasars that then passed through the reionizing universe. So, I mean, I, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but I, I, I sort of see this as you're, you're sort of looking at a light through a piece of Swiss cheese, and you can see the light um, that comes through the holes in the Swiss cheese. And these holes are bubbles of reionization that started to form during this period. And what they found is that um, there is a very strong correlation between the locations of early galaxies at that period and these bubbles these holes in the Swiss cheese. So I suppose each hole, well, this is probably a gross oversimplification, <laughs> but each hole in the Swiss cheese had a, a galaxy associated with it. And the, the, the researchers uh, on Iger described this as a smoking gun of evidence that galaxies were primarily responsible for reionization. So, you know, a, a, a great... Um, a great piece of understanding, I suppose, of the universe, uh, early universe, thanks to the JWST. And it's the one that we picked, but I mean, we've certainly been spoiled for choice for fantastic stories from the Space Telescope. It's really, really worked well, I'm guessing, beyond expectations. Yeah, I think there were sort of five or six other really key breakthroughs, including planetary physics, that we didn't... Uh that we covered but didn't include in the top 10 breakthroughs. But Hamish, still in the realm of big science experiments, um, and there's no bigger big science lab than CERN, um, we picked a breakthrough from there, but this is not really um, you know, high-energy physics. It's to do with antimatter. Yeah, that's right. This is, um, this is a, um, an experiment that, that uses protons um, from an accelerator at CERN but um, it's, not, uh, it's not the Large Hadron Collider. It's not associated with the search for the Higgs boson or measuring its properties. It's, um, it's, it's a group of physicists that call themselves the Alpha Collaboration. And what they do is basically they use the protons from, from CERN to create antimatter through various processes. And then they study this antimatter. And... Antimatter is very interesting because we know that when we look around uh, the universe, there's much more matter than antimatter um, in, the, in the universe that we can see. And this is a bit of a mystery because the standard model of particle physics says that matter and antimatter should be created in equal amounts. Um, and that, so where's all the antimatter uh, is the big question. Um, so, Alpha, it, one of their pr primary uh, missions is to, to answer this question, I suppose. And they do that by studying the properties of antimatter. And, you know, for the most part, antimatter behaves as predicted by the standard model. You know, the anti-electron behaves like an electron with a positive charge, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, clues haven't really been forthcoming. But what, what Alpha has done this time is they've created antihydrogen, which is a, 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 an antiproton that is bound to an antielectron or a positron and forms an atom. 
And they've managed to trap a number of these anti-hydrogen atoms in a, in a vacuum chamber using magnetic trapping, which is a pretty standard technique in physics, but they've done it with antimatter, which is, which is incredible uh, on its own. And this chamber is actually a, sort of a long, tall cylinder. And what they've done is they've switched off their magnetic trap and they've watched which way the, the antimatter goes. Does it fall down under gravity as predicted by the standard model? Or maybe it falls up, or maybe it doesn't fall at all. Who knows? Um, so they're looking at, um, at how antimatter behaves under Earth's gravitational field. And I suppose a, an interesting thing is that if, of course, gravity is big in the universe, it causes structures in the universe. And so if antimatter behaves differently to gravity than matter, that could explain why we don't see any antimatter, because it could be that gravity has pushed antimatter way to the other side of the universe, and, and we simply can't see it. I think that might be a simplification of, of what uh, physicists think. But nonetheless, it could have an effect on um, the location of antimatter in the universe. But alas, when they did their experiments, they found that, um, that the antimatter did fall down, um, so no huge shocker. Um, but, you know, the simple fact that they did it is amazing and worthy of a breakthrough. And it also tells us, you know, we can sort of check something off our list. Yeah. Um, but there is a tantalizing thing. Um, we love a bit here. of tantalizing. There is a bit of tantalization, if, if that's actually a word. Um, only that antihydrogen appeared to only experience 75% of the acceleration of gravity felt by normal matter. Now, it could be that, you know, the, the statistics are very poor in the experiments for making that particular measurement. So it could be that, you know, once this is refined, it'll actually be 100%. But, you know, there's still that tantalizing possibility that antimatter does respond differently to gravity than matter. And that would be a big, big, big thing. So stay tuned to um, the Alpha Collaboration at CERN. So antimatter falls down, but in a tantalizing way. Brilliant. Um, okay, thanks, Hamish. And uh, back down to Earth still. Um, we've got some research now that I really like because it's stuff I can get my head around. And we're talking cracks and especially fast-moving supersonic cracks. Margaret. Yeah, so this result on our list falls into a rare and wonderful category. Not only was it totally unexpected, which doesn't happen as much as scientists would like, all too often research is actually fairly predictable, it's a bit of a dirty secret, but this result is not only unexpected, it actually breaks known laws of physics, and that really doesn't happen much at all. The way it came about is that uh, Meng Wang, Songlin Shi, and Jay Feinberg of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem were studying brittle gels that are neo-hookian, which means they have a non-linear relationship between applied stress and strain. And they were studying how cracks propagate through these unusual materials. And what they saw is that when they stretch these gels and introduce a small cut to create an initial crack, just as you would in a normal sort of substance, the crack sp spread across the material about 30% faster than the speed of sound in the gel. And that's just not meant to happen. 
Supersonic cracks are not meant to happen because the speed of sound is related to how quickly mechanical energy can move from one part of a material to the other. And that needs to happen in order for material to crack. And the cool thing is the team still don't know quite how it's doing this, but they think it's maybe a sign of some new, um, new physics that they don't really understand yet. So they're trying to find out. We're hoping for some answers sometime soon. Well, I'm having the back of my house re-rendered, so I hope none of those supersonic cracks appear in that new render that the builders are putting on as we speak. Um, I'm about to go home to find out, so let's keep away from the supersonic cracks. If, you're, if your render is not a Neo-Hookean gel, you should be okay. It is not a Neo-Hookean gel. I'm pretty sure of that, so I can rest in soundly. Um, and then finally, the final top 10 breaks of the year again, Margaret. Um, so next year, it's the centenary of the prediction of the weird state of matter that we all know and love, Bose-Einstein condensates. And the next bit of research involved using potassium acid atoms to simulate the expanding universe. Now, this sounds slightly insane, but you did your PhD in this kind of area. So I'm hoping you can explain it to us, Margaret. Yeah, so you know, a poet might be able to see the entire universe in a drop of water, but the physicist involved in this final breakthrough on the list did something that's maybe even more impressive. They managed to simulate an, an entire expanding universe in a drop made up of atoms in a Bose-Einstein condensate, which is a special state of matter you mentioned in which all particles are in their lowest quantum state. Now, how did they do that? Well, it turns out that the universe and the quantum fields that permeate it are a bit like Bose-Einstein condensates, at least from a mathematical point of view. Specifically, the universe part of the simulation was the condensate itself, and the quantum fields were phonons, which are quantized packets of sound. When the researchers fired a laser at the condensate, they created a burst of phonons that then spread through it. Now, quantum particles follow trajectories that are determined by the, the curvature of the space-time they're moving in. So by studying the trajectory of the phonons through the BEC, the physicists were able to cons confirm that the condensate, that is, their simulated universe, had the spatial curvature they were aiming for. They could also simulate the expansion of this universe by changing the interactions between the atoms and the BEC, which is a tried-and-true technique now uh, within in, um, Bose-Einstein condensates. This research was done by Celia Wehrmann, Marcus Obertaler, and colleagues at the University of Heidelberg and elsewhere, and it isn't actually their first universe simulation experiment. They've been working on this topic for a while. And it's also unlikely to be their last experiment because they're now hoping to use the same tools to look back at the earliest moments of the universe and maybe even explore the hypothesis that the large-scale structure we see around us in galaxies and whatnot might actually have a quantum origin, which is really exciting. Brilliant. So the universe in a test tube, or not, not quite a test tube, a uh, cold atom. Magnetic uh, trap or op optical trap, actually. Yeah. Universe in an optical trap. Brilliant. So that's all of our top 10 breakthroughs for this year. And I hope you'll agree that they represent a wide range of um, amazing physics research. And stay tuned to the Physics World website because on Thursday, the 14th of December, we'll be announcing which one of these top 10 is our breakthrough of the year for 2023. So that's uh, all we have time for this week's podcast. Thank you very much to Tammy Freeman, Margaret Harris and Hamish Johnson and Michael Banks for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. And thanks to you for listening. And do join us again next week. Physics World.